Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Take it from your old pal Jack Burton. I'm here to show you the meaning. That's actually pretty good. Well, uh, well I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, that's like uh, Raymond doing Kurt Russell doing uh, John doing Wayne. Doing John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> Which he does He does again in uh, Death Proof and The Hateful Eight. He loves doing his John Wayne. Pretty good. Well, okay, so uh, I am Austin Hayden Smith. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Hey, how's it going, everybody? And we have Amanda joining us once again. Hello. And this week we are going to be talking, well, actually, let me just say what we'll do. We're going to set this up. We're going to be starting a little uh, retrospective on John Carpenter. So it, we're doing four films. Is that right, Raymond? I think that's, yeah, that's kind of what we decided we'd do uh, for this month. And then we talked about maybe maybe doing uh, Halloween come October, since that felt a little bit weird to do in uh, February. Yeah, although I'm always down for doing a scary movie, you know? We don't <laughs> do enough. Throwing, throwing a curveball. Yeah, There's no season for horror, right? I, right, Well, yeah. there is a season for well, yeah, Halloween. Well, yeah, but like, oh, season, okay. okay. <laughs> well, no, technically no, I, there yeah, is a season for horror, but it shouldn't be limited is what, yeah, yeah. So we're going to be doing no, um, some of John Carpenter's films. We've already done They Live, so if you haven't heard that one and you're a Carpenter fan, you can go back. It was a few months ago. Um, neither Raymond uh, and I were on it. I don't believe, Amanda, you weren't on that one, were you, for They Live? I was not. No. Yeah, So, um, but you can go check that one out. So we're going to be going through uh, some of the big hitters minus, minus They Live, but we decided to start with... Maybe one of his weirdest, um, one of the ones that was a, a favorite of mine from when I was a kid, Big Trouble in Little China. It stars Kurt Russell, Kim Cattrall, Dennis Dunn, James Hong, Victor Wong, and many, many, many others. So let's go around and do first impressions. If this was the first time you've seen it, then tell us what you thought. If you've seen it before, tell us how you've enjoyed or not enjoyed or whatever it is in between that spectrum in any uh, subsequent revisits or any of your previous watches, whatever. Let's start with Amanda. Okay, I had not seen this. Um, I had assumed that if we, like I signed on for a John Carpenter podcast, assuming it was just going to be like a (laughs) horror movie. This was not what I expected. (laughs) I had a ball, you know, I'm not gonna, it's the kind of movie where it's like having so much fun Mm. being insane that you feel kind of dumb, like picking on it for, you know, screenwriting mishaps or plot hole. Like it just doesn't. Like, my usual criticisms, I feel like, don't really apply. So I'm just going to, like, start off by saying I had fun. Okay. Great. Great. And Raymond? Uh, I will second that. I had actually only seen this movie once before, um, and not until fairly recently. Um, So I I didn't grow up with this movie. So in a way, I think I'm always going to be missing that part of it. I I don't have the nostalgia attached to it, which I, I understand this was a really big movie for a lot of movie kids growing up. Um, So I feel like I missed out a little bit and maybe it would, it it would probably hit me a little bit harder if, uh, if I had that familiarity with it. Um, But going into it this time, I, I enjoyed it a lot more than the first time that I watched it. I think because I was kind of removed from the last 30 years of hype and uh, I could just sit down, like Amanda said, enjoy it for what it was and, really appreciate kind of the the self-awareness and the goofiness of it that 
every time a character shows up, they tell you exactly who they are and exactly what their objective is. And you mean like, David Lopan, the evil wizard from the did it did it the guy that has the uh, flaming thing? It's just, you mean you mean you mean Joe so Wong, verbose. the guy that does this this and that, and that can fly and that can yeah exactly. It's like cartoonishly expository, and I kind of I I was on its wavelength this time around. I enjoyed it quite a bit, and I will just say I. I came away from this watch thinking, I just wish there were, you know, this is maybe beating a dead horse, but I wish there were still movies getting yes, made like this Yes, that's what I you was, know, yes. Like Ugh. live action adventures that are aimed at kids that help introduce them to uh, the visual vocabulary of other film genres, whether it's horror and kung fu or something like Gremlins that helps kids introduce to horror and uh, or uh, E.T. introducing kids to science fiction. There's just not enough of uh, good, playful, live-action stuff anymore. Yeah, um, so when I was a kid, this was one of my favorite films. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Chinatown in San Francisco, which is where this film uh, is set. And so for me, it was very much like... Um, like a, a kind of, oh yeah, I, I like Chinatown. Ooh, is this like the secret mysteries of Chinatown? So for me as a kid, it was kind of like, I was like, ooh, this is so cool. So whenever I would go then to Chinatown, even in LA when I would go to Chinatown, which is where I grew up, right? Uh, even then I would still be like, ooh, there's like, is David Lopin around here? Is there like magical sorcery behind these shops that have you know, dead chickens hanging in the windows or whatever. So for me, it was it was part of my childhood. I haven't seen it since I was a child, though, which is interesting. I've seen clips and things like that. So I was reticent to watch this because I've had a few films that were big hitters for me as a kid be just ruined recently, uh, particularly Three Amigos, which I recently rewatched. And I was like, oh, my God, this is actually a bad movie. And I was like, but I really, really... Yeah, it did not hold up, and so I was really worried that this was going to be bad, and I was so surprised that it really held up for me. And I had the same experience as both of you. It was fun, and then I came away from it saying, God, why can't we just make movies like this, you know? There's so much... Uh, reference to like Hong Kong B movies at the time. It's definitely an homage to a lot of those. It's an homage to a lot of martial arts films. And not only is Kurt Russell playing John Wayne, but I think it's actually set like a lot of classic westerns. And apparently the first script was actually set in the 1880s. So you can see why, but you get this, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more. But I think there are some really interesting western themes that, that, um, are part and parcel of the classic Western structure that really framed this story as well. Um, and so I thought it was really interesting. And then just because I want to kind of like give a little bit of a teaser, I also was wondering, mm, uh, as a good soy boy would do, is there a little bit of Orientalism here that we should be cautious of and be worried about? So I decided to do a little digging and do some reading, and I think there's some interesting stuff that came up. Um, I read a few different articles from a couple different Asian-American authors that were um, engaging with this, and so I figured these are some themes we can talk about on the other side of the recap. So just to kind of give little teasers for people on where some of the discussion might go. Um, that's kind of what we'll do. But let's jump into a recap, and then we'll start kind of diving into the madness that is Big Trouble in Little China. So, uh, Jack Burton, a big-mouthed, charming, long-distance truck driver, which how many times do you get that as a description of a character, by the way? A long-distance truck driver. I think that's just fantastic. Uh, so he's a big-mouthed, charming, long-distance truck driver. He wins a bet with his friend Wang. To make sure that Wang pays up, Jack follows him to the airport where Wang is picking up his fiancée. 
after the Chinese street gang, the Lords of Death, tries to kidnap one woman, Jack intervenes. Uh, so then Wang's fiance ends up getting kidnapped instead. Jack and Wang end up tracking down the gang back in through the back alleys of Chinatown, where a battle breaks out between two ancient Chinese warrior societies. Then three Raiden-looking dudes show up and shoot some lightning out of their hands, and Jack tries to gun his big rig out of there, but he ends up running over David Lopan, who is the man directing the Raiden-looking dudes. Jack and Wang abandon the truck and escape through the alleys. Wang then takes Jack to his restaurant where they meet with Gracie Law, uh, her journalist friend Margot, Wang's friend Eddie Lee, and magician Egg Shen, who's a local authority on mysticism and Lopan. They tell Jack about the ancient Chinese sorcery that was brought to America, but he doesn't fully believe it. Uh, they then have to make a plan to break into a brothel to rescue Jack's fiance, which is where that street gang took her. Now, once they get inside the brothel, though, the Raiden dudes kidnap Wang's fiance by flying through the roof, breaking the roof out, doing their lightning storm thing, and taking off. Jack and Wang end up tracking them down, but they get subdued and beaten up. They then meet Lopan, who explains how he needs to marry a green-eyed woman so that he can lift the curse that has been placed on him. Jack and Wang's friends show up, and they free a bunch of women that are being kept uh, held captive, and then Lopan realizes that Gracie also has green eyes, so he decides that he's just going to marry both her and Wang's fiance. Um, the group eventually all come together and they find Lopan. Huge fight breaks out. Jack kills Lopan. The Raiden dudes are taken care of, and the team escape after finding Jack's truck. Then later in Wang's restaurant, the group celebrate their victory, and Jack says he's got to leave and that he usually ends up rubbing people the wrong way, even though Gracie offers to join him. Margot says, aren't you at least going to kiss her before you go? And he just looks at her, gives that cocky Kurt Russell smile, and says, nope, and then takes off. And he goes off trucking on his own. Because as in any great Western, the man of violence can only blow through town and help civilization be restored, but he can't stay. Right? Just like in The Searchers. Just like in The Searchers. Okay, maybe it's not just like in The Searchers, but pretty damn close. Anyway, <laughs> so that is a very brief sort of synopsis of what happens in the film. But before we continue, I want to give a shout out to this episode's sponsor, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is the complete stock solution to providing an unlimited library of high-quality video, audio, and images through cost-effective subscriptions. Most of the world is still in the middle of a global pandemic, and now more than ever, people are turning to streaming, video, and audio content to keep occupied. But if you're thinking of starting your own channel, recording a podcast, or streaming, then you can't forget about the details, like what music you will use or media clips you might need. With Storyblocks Unlimited All Access Plan, you'll have unlimited downloads to Storyblocks 4K HD footage and their massive music library. You can stock up on assets without having to break the budget or turn to alternative sources for more tracks or clips. Storyblocks is essential to any creative, and we can prove it since we use their library to create our weekly videos and this podcast. So if you're ready to get access to an unlimited amount of stock assets and put the finishing touch on your project, then head to storyblocks.com wisecrack. That's storyblocks.com wisecrack. Now, back to the show. Um, let's start tackling some things. Uh, Amanda, where do you want to start off on this? Do you have anything that you want to throw into into the pot to start things off? Well, just one thought I had, um, and my kind of my favorite thing about this film is the Kurt Russell character, because he's almost like a parody of an <laughs> 80s action star. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
in that he like is is incompetent <laughs> but like carries himself like he's not like when he shoots the gun um, in the ceiling he, he and... thinks he's the hero that's he right he's right. the main character of the movie and he's yeah. kind of like the sabotaging sidekick in some ways yeah to his more competent partner. Um, And I just think that's really fun and smart. And I think a big part of what makes the film self-aware. Yeah. I think, I think it's one of the sort of uh, uh, elements in the, whatever magic sauce makes this movie work. Um, And I I do think that's pretty clever that in, uh, yeah. And virtually any other movie, um, essentially the, the demographic representation would be totally reversed that there would be, you know, it would be Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where there's one little goofy Asian sidekick who's there for mm. comic relief and is always kind of messing things up. And in this one, it's like Austin said, it's the standard, you know, uh, gunslinging white guy who uh, rides off into the sunset at the end. But virtually everything that goes wrong when they're trying to execute <laughs> one of their plans throughout the course of the movie is the hero type who does not realize he's getting in his friend's way it's and it is they have so much fun kind of playing with your expectations and playing with the the language of of not necessarily western movies but the hero's journey in general just that Mm. you know here comes this big guy who talks a big game and you (laughs) expect him to have the 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 guns to back it up so to speak but then of course like one i i cracked up this time when he He's telling them all, okay, you know, fall in line. We're going to open this door. We're going to go out there, blah, 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 blah. And then he opens it up. There's like 30 people out there. And he goes, yeah. okay, we may be trapped. <laughs> it's just like the fact that he thinks they all need him to like reorient their expectations once he's seen that. And it's just, it's, it's just really great. It just keeps humming along. And all of these times when like his, his utter incompetence does nothing to, uh, to assuage his sense of heroism that when, I think it's a. Uh, um, I can't remember if it's Kim Cattrall uh, or the uh, the reporter who's looking up out of the cage at him, and, and they go, "Are you here to help us?" And he's like, "Honestly, I don't know." He's <laughs> like, "We're gonna do our best, but we'll we'll see what happens." Yeah, I was giggling to myself. Uh, my girl was in the other room working, and I was sitting there with my my headphones on, and I was just laughing to myself. And she's like, "What are you laughing at?" And I was like, it's this movie. I was like, I did not think it was going to get me like this, but it really got me. I, w- I don't usually chuckle out loud as much as I did, but for some reason, I don't know. It, it just, it, it really hit, tickled my funny bone quite a bit. And um, it, it was even just like a lot of his little, little lines, like in the restaurant and stuff like that, where he, it, it just seemingly throwaway lines. But this guy, this character, it, and it is him doing the impression too. He's clearly doing his John Wayne. And it's that it's that kind of stilted delivery that is just it, it kind of adds to the ridiculousness. And I kind of think that I, I wonder I always wonder how much of these things are intentional choices, you know, and I tend to err on the side of let's give the uh, the directors, let's give the actors, let's give the design team the benefit of the doubt. And let's say that this is mostly intentional, especially if it's somebody that is that has um that has a reputation for making well-crafted films. So when we were talking about like plot holes and some of the expositional dialogue, and when you talk about like some of the goofiness, like I, I, I want to believe that all of these things were actually solid choices. 
right? And that, that they were just successful choices that landed rather than like sometimes you do get happy accidents and you throw a little bit of magic in the stew and something comes out and it's great and that's fantastic. But I choose to believe that almost everything in this film was intentional from the over-the-top facial expressions from certain actors, which I actually read that uh, some of the actors thought that this was like kind of like a typical uh, at that time 1980s Chinese like Hong Kong B horror film that they were making. So that's why they were making the expressions that they did because they were they were like trying to emulate that style. So for me, I really want to believe that this is just a really well-crafted film from top to bottom, thoroughly throughout, including characterizations, uh, the weirdness in the script, the exposition, plot holes, etc. I kind of want to believe that all of that is intentional because it's really kind of uh, an, a, an echo, if you will, of certain genres that it's emulating. Sure. And they, they kind of address some of that stuff in the commentary. Um, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell uh, did a, a commentary for this that was, at least it was on my DVD of it. I know there's a, a, a more recent Blu-ray release from uh, uh, Shout Factory that probably has a few other commentaries. But the one that I listened to, they they kind of touched on that idea of not just deconstructing this stuff, but or or really even spoofing it necessarily, but paying homage to it in a way that was sort of recentering the characters who, uh, or not necessarily recentering the characters who would typically get pushed to the sides of this story, but just kind mm. of having having someone in there who could be uh, this sort of like attraction magnet and uh, at times, um, you know, he, he's always the hero of his own story, but at times they kind of openly acknowledge that he's he's sort of the odd duck in the group. So that's interesting because, okay, A, my favorite line, or the, the time I laughed hardest was when he, like, emerges from the, the sewer, and he's like, it's okay, guys, I'm here. And I just, like, cracked <laughs> up because I was like, what? So, okay, so what are you going to do now, buddy? Um, But I also thought it was really weird, the choice to open it with um Egg, I'm so sorry, I forgot. Egg Shen? Uh, egg Shen giving like talking to his lawyer and being like leave kurt russell alone i know that's not his name uh, whatever (laughs) um and he's like he's like he saved us he was a hero (laughs) he's a hero and i was just so confused like do did you guys have any thoughts on that maybe that's the story that that jack burton tells on his little transistor radio while he's driving right like i kind of i kind of get the the idea that like, can you imagine when he gets on his freaking his little radio, what's the story he's telling as he's driving long distance? Is that maybe not this film, right? So it's like, once upon a time, you know, this is what happened. So maybe the whole film could be seen kind of in that light. Because then again, that's how we're introduced to him is on that damn radio, and that's how he leaves again, right? And he's just a bullshitter. So maybe the story that he tells is the, the, oh yeah, I was the hero of these events. You'll never believe what I encountered when I was in Chinatown, you know? But to to Amanda's point, I think it was, it, it did kind of jump out to me that there would be another character who was there for some or all of the events who would also be centering him as the hero. Um, because it, it, it did seem to me, because as I was watching it, I you know, I didn't have 
the clearest recollection of this film. And at the beginning, he says, you know, Jack Burton's a hero. We owe him everything, blah, 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 blah. And then <laughs> as the movie progresses, you're like, I'm pretty sure you owe this guy absolutely nothing. And he probably made this way more difficult than it needed to be. But that also, I don't know if maybe that framing device was kind of put in afterwards or if they just wanted something to kind of tease the magic because that doesn't kick in until later. And they just hastily wrote that scene or if you really think about the intention of it maybe all of the other characters after jack burton leaves can kind of like scapegoat jack burton as you know if anyone comes around here asking about all the all the big trouble we got into we can blame it on the dude who left and if if anyone you know if the 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 men in black or whatever the 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 dudes in black suits come around to ask us questions we'll just we'll blame it on the guy that's gone and we know that we can at least take care of our own selves if if things ever pop off again but i don't know it was it was a weird creative choice though i agree amanda i'm maybe not convinced it shouldn't have been cut despite <laughs> austin's uh declaration that everything was super intentional i'm like re- i'm still really puzzled by it <laughs> so what no do we think obsess. Let, let's spend a little bit of time chatting about carpenter and so amanda you said you were kind of like okay cool so we're doing carpenter it's gonna be a horror film and then all of a sudden you got like thrown a, a curveball here so what do we think what is our experience with carpenter um what were the signature fingerprints in this film that we think are very carpenter-esque that sort of thing. Let's let's talk a little bit about the aesthetic and what he's known for and how that's translated here. And then I guess the last thing I'll say is I did not know that this was a commercial bomb, uh, but it did not do well, and it's only become popular after the fact. So there's something interesting in that, and I guess Carpenter then, this was for him kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back where he says, well, screw it, I'm leaving Hollywood, and I'm no longer going to work on these studio projects. I'm going to go back to be an indie filmmaker. So there is something interesting was he was he held back a little? Do you think he was kind of confined in this? Do you think he was able to find his stride even within the midst of kind of like the structural constraints of the studio system? What do we think about the carpenterisms uh, of this film? Well, I mean, just like speaking to its commercial failure, I feel like that's almost inevitable when you have something that blurs genres as much as the movie does. I mean, I read his explanation of it. I think he gave it like eight different genres he was like it's an action ghost horror like blah 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 uh kung fu movie and it's like that's like as like dumb and annoying as it is that's like hard to market and it almost like i feel like if you combine more than three genres and you make a good movie you're like destining yourself to be a cult film but um but yeah yeah and and that's one of the surprising things about this movie is how well it all hangs together despite being you know fantasy kung fu touches of horror um western you know goofy goofy comedy throughout western tropes and things like that it it really does feel like a mixed bag um there's there's something in there for everyone i i think as far as i see carpenter the filmmaker a lot in this those like widescreen anamorphic compositions where he he can make like that um I, i for whatever reason i always think of the 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 early scene in the airport when those three guys show up to kidnap um uh david dunn's fiance and or excuse me dennis dunn um 
And there's this shot where the three of them are kind of looming over the camera and it's this really wide composition. And you just kind of see the the ceilings and stuff. And he's, John Carpenter's a huge John Ford fan. And that was one of the big things in like Rio Bravo was show, show the ceilings so people feel like you're not on a set. You want it to feel real and lived in and everything. So I I see those those Western tinges in this. And that's always been John Carpenter's thing. He's always said he just... He wants to make a Western. And at the time, he was on a little bit of a streak with Kurt Russell. This is like his fourth movie he had made with them. So I see his fingerprints throughout it, but I, I agree. It, it's It kind of stands out in his filmography. He's made other movies outside the horror genre. He did Elvis, which is just an Elvis Presley biopic with Kurt Russell. He, you know, he's, he's done some other stuff. Uh, Starman is a little bit more science fiction-y, a little bit more earnest. Um, and he's had a weird run late in his career, too. But... This this one definitely stands out for whatever reason. It just it feels much more like a almost like a Joe Dante movie with all the, the sort of kid friendly elements and um the the weird effects and science fictiony stuff that's popping in and out and I I don't know I I think it's a good question but it's it's tough to position because. He did, he did say that he had some trouble with the studio on this, and afterward he did, like, I think Prince of Darkness and They Live were his next two movies, and those were both independently financed. Um, so maybe that was his attempt to kind of get his groove back a little bit. Um, I, think, I think this movie's good, but maybe he just had... Uh, it, it, may have left a bad taste in his mouth. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I've read that he still says, no, that's a good movie. And the fact that it was a, a commercial flop uh, just kind of really kind of baffled him. And um, it is kind of interesting to hear to hear somebody say that to just come right out and be like, no, that's a good movie, and they fucked it up. You know, like the release was time was poorly timed because it came out I think at the same time as Alien, so that kind of messed it up. And um, yeah, I mean, and then how do you market this film, right? Yeah, I imagine I imagine it would be a a, a marketing team's nightmare. But he he also said in an interview somewhat recently that uh, because the thing flopped as well, and I I consider the thing to be his best movie. I I adore that film. Um, and he said something in an interview where he was asked, "Well, aren't you at least pleased that it's kind of become a cult classic?" And he goes, "I mean, sure, yeah, but at the time it almost fucking ruined my career." <laughs> He's like, "I would <laughs> I would have much much preferred it to just be an immediate classic and for yeah. me to be able to make more movies immediately." <laughs> like he does he does have a little bit of uh, a little bit of piss and vinegar in him if he you does. listen to his recent interviews where he talks about his music and how he's like I he was quoted one time as saying, you know, uh in 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 Europe, I'm an artist, and in America, I'm a bum. And now he just kind of like tours with his son, doing his his music, and they they do a lot of shows in Europe. They do a lot of shows here, and it's just so much easier for him than like going through the pain of making a movie and having his heart broken as they take it away from him. Mm. Um. Okay, so we've talked about Carpenter. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Kurt Russell, uh, Kim Cattrall, Dennis Dunn, um, the rest of the cast. Let's talk about the cast in this. Um, what do we think about performances? What were standouts? Uh, anything that was surprising? Anything that we were kind of like meh on? I mean, I'm distracted. I feel like we just have to air out the fact that Kim Cattrall's character is a lawyer with the last name Law which is just, like, so <laughs> hilariously, like, like they were like, who is she? Oh, she's, like, what's her first name? Gracie Law. Gracie like, Law. Chrissy Law. Like, Gracie. yeah, and that almost yeah. felt like, like, a stand-in name that they were like, yeah, let's keep it. I just love that. I love that kind of shit with, like, uh, with, with like, a movie that's not taking itself seriously. Um, 
performance-wise, uh, other than Kurt Russell, I mean, I don't know that anyone's, like, super standing out for me. Uh, yeah. Yeah, any... thoughts? I don't know. I mean, this isn't... I don't know that they're going to be handing out awards for yeah, these kinds of exactly. performances. So, but everyone, everyone works. There's no That's one it. who stands out who... You, you see in a lot of movies, and I think it really can ruin a lot of otherwise good films, when an ensemble is all acting in different movies. Mm. And I can't, I can't stand that when you're watching. There, there could be a version of this movie where these guys are over here doing their super serious action movie sort of thing. You've got Kurt Russell doing his John Wayne shtick. You've got these folks over here playing to the rafters, twirling their mustache and doing their, their high villainy thing. But like everyone in this feels like they're, they're committed to the vision. They, Mm. they're, they're all hitting the same kind of tone, the same mood. Um, I'm trying to think of a a useful example for a movie where certain characters are just in another movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll see if if one pops into my head later. But I think there are a lot of movies with Nicolas Cage. I love Nicolas Cage. There are a lot of recent films where they're just trying to make a straightforward drama and they're trying to goose their red box rentals by casting Nick Cage in it. And then he comes on and gives you full Nicolas Cage when you just need someone to kind of like hit their marks and say their lines. Okay, but um, he's like mostly always right and the other people yeah. are wrong, right? Just to well, say, but that's just... But that's the thing though, is like there's still an imbalance there. Sure, sure, sure. No, I know exactly what you mean. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, like incongruency in, in acting Another, approaches. Uh, Another guy recently was, um, uh, I'm not a big fan of Eddie Redmayne, but in Jupiter Ascending, he's yes. just coming out. And yes. Just, do, he's just doing this full-on operatic performance, whereas everyone else is trying to do kind of like <laughs> a mellowed out sort of, yeah, you know, yeah. not necessarily Matrixy vibe, but they're, they're trying to do the like sort of prestige sci-fi thing. And then Eddie Redmayne shows up and he's like throwing his cape around and stuff. Yeah, yeah. 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 I will say to Kim Cattrall's, uh, to, to, to her credit, she gives a lot of ridiculous lines with, like, an absolute sincerity, like, that I respect. Oh, sure. <laughs> That's one of the things she has. It just, like, she was one of my favorite actors as a kid from this and then Mannequin, which was, like, my favorite movie as a child. So, like, really? yeah, yeah. I used to watch Mannequin, Club Paradise, Big Trouble in Little China, Three Amigos. Uh, Top Gun, Willow, those are like, that's my childhood, like up until I was seven in a nutshell, those films right there. Uh-huh. So yeah, I love, I loved Kim Cattrall, but she's got like, um, there's something in her, her eyes, not just cause they're green eyes. Um, but, uh, <laughs> no, there's, there's like, um, there's this, it's a sincerity is what it is, but it's almost like this, like, uh, this softness, this like. I, I, I want to say childlikeness, but I'm not sure it's a childlikeness. But there's something that whenever she says anything, it, it's definitely coming from a, a place of authenticity, right? So there's always that sincerity in it, even if it is kind of ridiculous. Even if it's like, but wait, what are we going to do? It's still, it's very much like, no, no, she really is like sincerely kind of like wondering what's going on. There's never any sort of jadedness or or sort of like... Um, 
uh, kind of toughness that's there. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of really consistent. And then, of course, when she does Sex in the City, that kind of has transformed a little bit, which is kind of, I think, why for me, when I saw Sex in the City, I was like, whoa! I was like, who is this? I was like, this is a totally different person than, than the woman that I remembered from before. So, But yeah, I love, love me some Kim Cattrall. The script kind of positions her in that sort of earnest role that when she... Uh, she's she's seen before this, but when she kind of kicks in the door at the Chinese food restaurant, and I think it's raining outside, and she slams the door, and they're all kind of talking, and then they all go, "Oh no, it's crazy law! What's going on?" <laughs> or whatever, and it's just like they the immediate sense with their character dynamic is that they have this history and this respect for this woman that like if she shows up, it means something's going down somewhere. Like we've got to <laughs> we we've got to really put our heads together now. Like we the brains have the, the brain trust has shown up. Yeah. Um. But she to to your point, Amanda, about just like calling the lawyer Gracie Law, it it is the the name version of what uh, I can't remember her last name, but we mentioned it earlier, Mar- Margot. Uh, when she's introduced, she goes, "We have to go in there." I mean, if we have to go in there, we'll go in there because I'll do anything to get my story because I'm a great reporter. <laughs> and it's just right. like it's just like the entire back of her trading card just spewed out in the space of five seconds. And I just I love that. It, I, I guarantee at some point they were either going through the script and said like, "There's a lot of really wonky exposition in this." And, and then they just said, uh, okay, we can either clean this up or just fucking lean into it. Or, or maybe they just, they rewrote it around that notion of just like, just make it clear, go in there, state your intention, and then on to the fireworks. Yeah, you wonder, I wonder like as the actors, if you read this, if you go over to the, the writers, the director, and you're like, I mean, isn't this a little bit expositional? And John just kind of like looks at you and is like, just trust me, okay? We, we got a plan here. We're doing this on purpose. <laughs> he even said he, he wasn't a fan of the, he was offered the script, I think like a decade before he ended up making it. And he said something about how he couldn't even finish it. He thought it was just dog shit. <laughs> and then I guess I don't know what the hell happened. I there haven't was like been able a huge to find out. rewriting thing where it was. I mean, like you, I think one of you said it was like it was originally a western. Yeah. And then there was yeah. like I was even I was just reading about the film and there was like some huge uh, WGA lawsuit where the original writers wanted credit, but the so the the writer who revised the original that maybe he hated is now like the adapter of it. I don't know. It's okay. like some like writing politics shit. But, um, sure. I would have yeah. to read into it because I was kind of confused about where that, because all I had read was John Carpenter hated the script 10 years before he made it. And then he made it <laughs> 10 years later. And I was right. just like, what the fuck happened in that 10 years? Maybe it was just someone gave it a fresh coat of paint and it was a little bit more alluring to him. Or he was just like, he was kind of on his back foot after the thing. He, he made a couple movies between this and the thing, but I know, I think Christine was right after the thing. I can't remember what else, but it, maybe he was just in a position where he's like, well, fuck it. If, if someone still wants me to direct any movie, I don't know. Give me your scripts. Fuck, I've read this one. Okay, let's figure it out. <laughs> All right, so I wouldn't be a good critical theorist if I didn't bring up something that we, we teased in the intro, which is the possibility of there being some Orientalism uh, in hey, this It's more film. than a possibility. Um, so what do we think about the uh, treatment of Asian American culture with all of the lore and the mysticism and the ancient Chinese warring societies and all of these things like that? 
Um, so what what do we think about that? So as definitely not an expert, like A on foreign film, B on like kung fu movies, um, I actually talked to Lux, our Wisecrack director, who is an expert on these things. And he was, he was telling me that there's like some very clear influences, um, like obviously like the Shaw Brothers, there's like, so, it's very referential. And in that way, like my immediate reaction when I was watching this is like, is this racist? And like, or am I not understanding? Is there like an inside joke I'm not getting? And I was even asking him, like, is there in some of like these, the films that you're talking about that this film is clearly referencing, is there a sense of like Chinese culture as like dangerous and mystical and all these things that I was like on face feels kind of problematic. And he was like, it's like kind of problematic, but also that exists in like the, the movies that are being referenced. So it's sort of complicated, I think. Um, because there's like the risk that always like when you're even when you're referencing another culture's films, there's always the risk of like flattening the complexity and not being specific enough and like getting too broad, which I think maybe the film is guilty of. But as not an expert of the films being referenced, like I'm not, I'm not I'm still not totally sure. Hmm. Yeah, I get in the in the general sense the notion of like exoticizing or fetishizing a certain culture um, is kind of on its face can be read as inherently problematic. Um, I, I don't necessarily know that when, when I watch this, I don't really have that sort of knee jerk reaction that I do sometimes when I watch older movies where really insensitive things happen. Um, I'm sure that there's some very, some very reasonable criticism of it, but um, I, I'm probably not the best person to judge. Um, yeah. I'm sure we could all say that. But the one thing that I will give it credit for is that even if there are problematic aspects or depictions, I think at times the movie's aware of that in a way that it kind of points out, like the way that um, uh, Dennis Dunn plays that joke on him where he goes, oh, what does this say? And he says, oh, this is the the hell of uh, a thousand deaths or whatever. And then he goes, are you serious? He goes, no, it just says, keep out. <laughs> so, like they, they, they do kind of draw attention to that stuff that like, this is, this is a culture that's being used as set decoration in a sense, but it also has people who are populating that those sets that can, can kind of speak to that and deconstruct it a little bit. And at the end of the day, I also, I do give them kudos. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, uh, this is one of my favorite comedies. One of my favorite movies in general is Coming to America, mm. which has some of the same vibes where it sort of exoticizes or fetishizes uh, aspects of, of black culture. And then they have kind of, you know, uh, I can't remember what made up African nation Prince Akeem comes from, but it's kind of just like a pan-African mishmash of just a lot of different cultural influences i can see how some of that stuff is problematic but what i will give them credit for is that at the end of the day that's still a movie that is a predominantly black cast and is you know at that time that was mostly unheard of like for a movie to be number one with an almost all black cast um this movie didn't do so well at the box office but i do you know, credit where credit's due, there weren't a lot of movies being made back then with, you know, one Asian character, let alone multiple 
characters of, of Chinese descent who are all kind of like taking control of these tropes and these character dynamics in their own in their own way and giving it their own voice. Yeah. So some some of the if you just Google Big Trouble in Little China Orientalism, you'll just get a slew of things. And I know that like Roger Ebert was a little bit uncomfortable when he first saw it and thought that it was a little bit Fu Manchu-y um, at times. But I did come across an article just to kind of present an alternative to this written by a woman named Joe Fu in uh, on a, an outlet called Women Write About Comics. And it's a long kind of like uh, expose on, on this um, film. Uh, while also comparing it with some what she sees as more problematic stuff uh, from like the Doctor Strange uh, film in particular. Um, But anyway, uh, uh, I just want to read like a little excerpt from it. So she says, By the time of the Chinese immigrant boom of the 1960s, Chinese people and the quickly developing community of Chinese Americans were creating neighborhoods with two faces. The white-facing tourist locales featuring kitschy shopping and cheap massage parlors and the inward-facing private spaces for natives, native speakers, and recent immigrants. It's the latter world that John Carpenter wants to explore in BTLC, and he does so by thrusting outsiders Jack Burton and Gracie Law into the dark heart of Chinatown for most of the movie. In fact, the only spaces for white people are the bookends of the movie, the cozy inside of Jack's truck as he foreshadows and then post-processes the events of the film, and during the MacGuffin trip to the airport. Gracie is there to assist an immigrant, but expresses surprise and alarm when Jack's target, a green-eyed Chinese woman who's engaged to his friend Wang Chi, is intercepted by the three members of a violent gang. After a quick car chase out of the airport, Jack and Wang Chi never leave Chinatown, and Wang Chi must constantly lead his hapless white friend through the cultural issues that he manages all the time, but Jack is unfamiliar with. And then the author, she goes on and kind of keeps explaining things, how it's about that two-sidedness that the film really explores, and that normally when we critique a film for its Orientalism, it doesn't explore that two-sidedness, but it flattens it, like one of you was saying a minute ago. And what happens is is that the white savior comes in and becomes the one who kind of like presents the equilibrium or the playing field on which the film unfolds. Whereas what this film does is it doesn't allow that. It's populated by Chinese actors who all have different accents, right? Some of them have uh, kind of more uh, kind of standard American sounding accents. Uh, some of them uh, have more of like a Chinese inflection. Some of them are uh, kind of like speaking in Mandarin, Cantonese, and they all do this seamlessly with Jack kind of being bewildered right rather than him being the one who's the one at ease all the time it's their world that is the world at ease and he's constantly the outsider so the film kind of has a really uh, I'm sorry this little article has a really interesting kind of nuance to take where it's like yes is there some element of orientalism sure but the way that it's handled it actually according to the author it does so in a way that is actually a really good service to that tension that is inherent in the two-sidedness of the Chinese American, uh, the Chinese American experience itself. So it's a really interesting article. Go to if you're interested in reading about it. Women write about comics by Joe Fu, and the title of the uh, article is just Orientalism in Big Trouble in Little China. I actually think that's super fascinating. It just occurs to me. Maybe she talks about this that like using the tour bus as a setting at one point kind of accentuates that tension. Because it's him, you know, showing off his neighborhood to a bunch of white people and, uh, like, creating whatever narrative he thinks they want to hear. And and obviously, while knowing that there's something very different going on. And I hadn't thought of it that way. I think that's very illuminating. 
Yeah, and then it's this, the sorcery stuff was the stuff that I was like, I was like, oh, is that just like us white people like going, ooh, the ancient mystics of Eastern culture like we love to do with like shamanism and, uh, and of course the East, right? And um, one of the things that she says is actually, no, this is a hallmark of a lot of the Hong Kong B films at that time. And so while, while yes, uh, there could be an element where it's kind of like, are we, are we putting this on display for amusement? Sure, but at the same time, at least according to this author, it's handled in a way that is actually quite respectful and that fits within that lineage. So um, it, interesting kind of to look at kind of all these different angles, I guess. And, and that kind of, it, it sounds like that article hits a little bit on some of the stuff we were discussing earlier, how they're constantly undermining the sort of white savior trope. Right. And, and uh, they're, they're drawing the, the responsibility and the onus away from, from Jack as the sort of agent of progress in this story. And he's, you know, once again, he's always fucking things up. He's not only that, he's always having to play catch up. And there's also that great scene where they're like, we need to send a dork in there. <laughs> and they just yeah. like throw, throw like big glasses and a dorky blazer on him. And it's like they're, they're constantly undermining his presence as the, uh, the would-be white savior or, or, or typical Western hero. So I, I'd like to read that. That's Yeah, and I'll just read one last. This is kind of like the button of the article. She writes, John Carpenter is doing an homage to Hong Kong B-horror. And from what I remember as a tiny child consuming these movies, he does a great job making an American entry into the genre. The genre is called Zheng Shi and relies on jumping ghosts and vampires and silliness. For a sublime example, you can see Samo Hung doing The Evil Dead first in a Gonzo 1980 film called Encounters of the Spooky Kind. John Carpenter wasn't making a mockery of Chinese silliness. He was engaging with a genre of Hong Kong horror that was experiencing a renaissance. By the time BTLC was released, the Hong Kong market was hitting its height, and BTLC shared its moment with other goofy horror flicks like Mr. Vampire and this masterpiece of wackiness, Ninja the Violent Sorcerer. Compared to some contemporary Zhangxi villains, James Hong Lo, James Hong's Lo Pan, the Gonzo undead sorcerer who only wants to find love, isn't even that outlandish. And then she says, "Here's the thing: the movie treats its westerners with profound silliness as well. While an American audience can laugh at the amazing effects of this movie, it could also make fun of Jack Burton, who at one point shoots a gun in the air and is knocked out for the mo for most of the final fight by random rocks. Gracie Law is constantly mentioning that she's a lawyer and merrily exposits, You know me, I stick my nose in everything. And after dramatically discussing the many hells of China, Wang Chi teases his white friend for a moment. Jack Burton basically says, he's pointing to Chinese writing on the elevator, he says, What does that say? Wang Chi speaks in Chinese, Hell of boiling oil. Jack Burton, you're kidding. Wang Chi, yeah, I am. It says keep out. <laughs> one of the best lines in the movie <laughs> um i would i would add into that there's there's another um a, a trilogy of films that i watched earlier this year called uh or maybe it was the end of last year i don't know time is a flat circle um uh, a chinese ghost story uh which were uh, produced by Choi hawk um and they they also have like a really evil dead vibe to them there's mr vampire which was mentioned in that article mm -hmm. uh th there's this uh, lore of vampires in, in China that they all hop and if you hold your breath that they can't sense you like those movies are so goofy and so much fun and I, while I don't necessarily recognize the same like tropes or archetypes in Big Trouble in Little China there is sort of a revolving cast of character archetypes that you see in those that always end up 
like the goofy hero or the the femme fatale and uh there's this this bald man stare or uh, archetype in uh kung fu movies who's kind of like the comic relief and uh, always bumbling around and i kept thinking about that in big trouble in little china like oh man they gave their bald man just the most luscious head of hair with jack burton <laughs> and you know i was just thinking like like we wouldn't take like the way Americans are behaving in like a 1930s like slapstick film and be like oh they're portraying Americans is so silly like if you are really drawing from like a, a a very like a wealth of cultural products like in a way I, I was kind of thinking like what is the benefit of making an American film that's drawing on all these like all of all of these tropes and and devices and possibly it's that it's like it's making it accessible to americans and then maybe the americans will go watch the film like all the films that are listed in that article that now i kind of really want to see because i'm so curious mm. so i don't know yeah it's always t- like, yeah go like, ahead uh, oh all i was gonna say was um you know in my opening reaction to this that's kind of why i miss movies like this is it, it gets kids excited or not just kids but audience members in general it gets them excited about expanding their visual literacy and and, and exploring these uh subgenres and and you know maybe someone who's never seen uh movies or doesn't actively seek out movies from other countries if they see something like this that has some of those tropes and uh some of that visual language maybe oh okay other movies like that mm, okay yeah i can watch something with subtitles i'll give it a shot yeah, it's interesting. I was I was trying to think last night. I was like, how how could somebody make this film today, and where would it land? And I was like, I don't know that it would be made with the artistry that it was made with. It would probably be something that they're like, yeah, let's stick this in the catalog of Netflix, and it would have like really kind of low level post production CGI effects, and um, the story wouldn't be like. I don't even know if you could lean into it as much. Like, I don't even know if you could actually craft this kind of film today because I don't know that you'd be able to get craftspeople that that would spend their time on this kind of film because it wouldn't be a moneymaker. Or uh, I, I don't even know. But like, are are there these types of films that are being made that are showing at the independent, uh, 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 you know, in like the independent circles and things like that and we just miss them? Or is it that they require too big of a budget? This is like a $15 million budget. So that's not nothing, yeah. you know? And... In, in- uh, they certainly wouldn't be building these huge elaborate sets anymore just to burn them down like yeah. they do four times in this movie. I mean, I was having a blast watching how many of these huge neon bedecked sets <laughs> that had to have been made specifically for this movie just got blown to smithereens. I had real Henson I had real Jim Henson vibes when they were walking through the cave and you had that freaking monster with the googly <laughs> eyes. And I was like, wait a second, did they just Who shows build... up on the truck at the end? Yeah, I was yeah. like, did they just build this whole freaking cave set to just add a layer of spookiness that was kinda like Fraggle Rocky? That's what I was I felt like very Fraggle Rock vibes with the that whole cave no, and that for little monster. Sure thing. from that character and the character kinda comes in, goes away and then reappears at the end and i was like and i was kind of thinking like did the main character like learn anything from this adventure that's discernible like did he have a discernible arc i'm not sure he kind of goes back to his same status quo and i thought it was really funny to have like one of the quote like biggest villains of the film like just kind of stalking him at the end as if like a reminder that he didn't learn anything i don't know am i yeah, reading too they never... much 
they never name that thing. They never address where the hell yeah. it came from, how they domesticated it or trained it to deliver their kidnapping victims or anything like that. There, there, there are all of these little, you know... But that's like, like big movies. and insane, you know? That's like insane <laughs> no, to have No, like... <laughs> I know, but that's... And that's what I'm saying is like, I, I like that they don't feel that it's necessary to do that, you know, that they there is a universe that's being built out, but they don't, for all of the goofy exposition in this, they never have to stop and explain like, this is, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Star Wars. They never go, this is the Rancor pit, and that's the Rancor, and he's going to find him, blah, blah, blah. Like, they just let you figure that out when the trading cards and action figures come out. And this kind of has that same sort of vibe, even right down to that last moment where the weird little ape looking guy shows up on the back of his truck you're like all right i guess the sequel would have been that's right him fighting yeah. him chasing <laughs> jack burton and it's you you buy this sense that the adventure uh doesn't end with the movie it doesn't end at the edges of the frame yeah. there's always going to be something else out there that's lurking like they kind of alluded to in that article there's there's always going to be something behind the front facing aspects of uh, of this this environment or this atmosphere and I don't know. I, I I like that. I love when when movies give you a sense of the universe that you don't really they they never fully illuminate. I would totally watch a buddy comedy of Kurt Russell and that furry guy. And the furry guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you would too. <laughs> All right. So before we go ahead and wrap things up, let's jump into the mailbag. Of course, for people listening, uh, we don't have any voicemails this week. If you want, you can call in. You can talk about anything from our past catalog. You can talk about Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, the number is one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. That's one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. You can call and leave us your thoughts. But as I said, we don't have any voicemails this week that we're going to address. So we're going to look into the email portion of the mailbag. So if you want to email us, you can email us to contribute at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co, not com.co. So first, we're going to start with Georgia, who wrote about Tenant. Now, I'm just going to warn both of you that these, these are all like, we got a slew of emails about Tenant. So uh, some of these will be Tenant related. So sorry, Raymond, for making you revisit this film. I know you didn't it's fine. love it so It's much. fine. Did no, you everyone, hate it everyone too? thinks... No, I don't. I don't. I only hate two okay. movies. I've only ever hated two movies. I don't hate um, it. Well, yeah, maybe. I. I don't have. I'm not mad at Tenet. I just think that. I, I just think we can start expecting a little bit more from this. Okay. Okay. This point All right. Career. Let's get it. Okay. Let's let's get into this. Here we go. So Georgia. Hi guys. My name is Georgia. I hope you're well. I found myself searching for a lot of videos about Tenet, trying to understand the time reverse mechanism. And I'm very glad you guys made an episode about it. In some of these videos I watched, many people are speculating about Neil being Maximilian, Kat's son from the future. The theory is reinforced by the fact that the last four letters of Maximilian in reverse are, of course, Neil. Too much of coincidence, right? Do you guys think this theory makes sense? Does Nolan give enough information about Kat's kid to make it plausible? I wish I could say I believe this theory to be true, but to be honest, I'm still not so sure I actually understood the movie in its entirety. Love the show. Greetings from Italy, Georgia. Um, I, I, don't, I don't care about her kid in the movie. I don't, I don't care about her hypothetical kid outside of the movie. I don't care. 
You're not a big uh, uh, Reddit fan fan theory uh, engager. It's. I mean, that stuff. That stuff is fun. I I like having that be part of the discourse. Sure, but I don't. When when you make a movie, I think you should you should do the fucking work. You shouldn't expect a bunch <laughs> of people on Reddit to go and fucking do the work for you to make. Oh no, there's just a bunch of people on Reddit telling me uh, the movie's actually great because uh, Robert Pattinson might be this little boy. I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't. That means that means absolutely nothing. It doesn't change my read of the movie. The, the little boy is still the little boy that also would die with the rest of the universe should the uh, algorithm explode. And Robert Pattinson is still uh, handsome and charming. So I don't... I don't I, uh, the, what else do you want? Twain shall I got, never meet. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Amanda, what do you think? Whatever. If... I mean, I think enough said. Like, Raymond, I feel like Raymond <laughs> summarized how I felt about that. Like, yeah, you're right. Tell the story. Don't make us, like, guess and pick at pieces. I don't know. That's, that's not, yeah. The, the, like, Easter egg, when you're, when Easter eggs become the plot, that's when I'm like, you start to lose me. I don't know. And also, it's not really fair of me to lay this at Christopher Nolan's feet, because to him, he probably just put a boy and a man in the same movie, and then Reddit <laughs> being Reddit said that boy and the man are the same person, and he's it's probably like just the, like... It's like the Pixar theory. He's just not on like, internet enough like to Like that every Pixar film is takes place in the same universe. Takes place in the same universe. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It's, it's, fun. it's, it's fun. fun to write listicles about, but I do not care. Okay, so let's go <laughs> on to Peter, who also wants to talk about Tenet. Peter says... Hey, Show Me the Meaning crew. Love the show. Every time I finish a film, I immediately turn to the pod to get your guys' take on it. Just wanted to make a comment about Tenet. Living in Sydney, I too saw the film in cinemas, twice. The first time, I tried uh, my hardest to follow the science fiction aspects and the time travel mechanics and got completely lost. Second time, I followed the tip given by the physicist at the start, Clements Posey, I think, who says to the protagonist, don't try to understand it, feel it. In some ways, taking that piece of advice made me enjoy the film more. I was able to just sit back and enjoy the technical aspects, some of the great set pieces in the soundtrack, which is low-key the best part of the film. This still doesn't fix the issues you guys raised, but my second viewing was definitely more enjoyable with that viewing lens. Once again, love the show. Can't wait for the next release. Peter. What do we think? Okay, guys, I have to be so honest. I, I watched this film, but I did fall asleep, which <laughs> I think says a lot about my feelings about it. Um, I fell asleep, I woke up, and then I was like, I was confused, but then everybody who had seen the whole thing was confused. So what I'll say is, um, it just wasn't making sense to me, and that bothered me. And and I, I wish I could be as kind of like chill <laughs> about meaning. I don't know, it just, it was, it just, yeah. Yeah, okay, I, I'll, I'll say, say this, because I I kind of made this point uh, when we actually talked about it last week. So I saw it once in cinemas, and that was when I was sitting there, and my partner and I, we were like, what the hell is going on? And I'm, like, literally writing about the philosophy of time, right? And she's like, do you understand this? <laughs> and I was like, I'm, I'm confused. Like, this is my this is my field right now, you know? Um, I was like, okay, like, like we'll really try to concentrate. Um, but we still, I, we both still kind of enjoyed the kind of wackiness of it, right? Then the second time I watched it, now, Raymond, I'm sorry, I'm going to say this again. I watched it at one and a half times speed, and... Um, <laughs> And I, I just was like, screw the technical, like, science stuff. I'm just going to enjoy this as, like, a caper, like a Bond film. And maybe at that speed and with that in mind, I actually really kind of enjoyed it again. So maybe that's the secret to this whole thing. 
The secret. So take the a secret ton of to, Adderall and watch Tenet. <laughs> the secret to enjoying the movie is watching it at one and a half speed and not caring about it at all. Yes. <laughs> like, what does that say about the fucking movie? Because you know, Christopher Christopher Nolan is um, he's I I I reiterate, I think he's a, a wonderful filmmaker. I just I just don't think he's a great screenwriter. I think mm. if if he were to partner up with someone, if and and just have someone bring bring a little life to this script i think it would have been a, a hell of a time i like all the science fiction aspects i like all the, the the crazy stuff i think that the image of watching john david washington sort of like scramble backwards to grab his gun like that's a weird and compelling image that burns itself into your brain there are really cool ideas that he's always playing with but i wish that he would go a little bit deeper than just you know guy in nice suit runs backwards or guy in nice suit uh runs on the ceiling of a hotel room or guy guy in nice suit uh can teleport across the theater now well this is why memento is such a good film i think because memento really does have depth of character it's somebody dealing with a trauma who's confused and then it has the interesting kind of like technical aspect of you know retrograde amnesia that's on top of that but it's all centered around um a person and humans and uh what happens in the world and trauma and so i think that's what for me gives it much more teeth you know what were you gonna say amanda yeah i know i know that we're like about to about to wrap up but we've been talking about this actually and like in the context of tenet uh at wisecrack wondering like if there's like a, a phenomenon where directors once they're really like respected and they've made a bunch of blockbusters they kind of just get like carte blanche to do whatever they want and maybe there should be a few more people in the room being like christopher nolan let's work out the facts before we leap into this like 200 million dollar production or whatever it is you know um that was kind of my the bulk of my reaction to what i saw with tenet when i wasn't sleeping (laughs) i will never be one to advocate for studio meddling but I think there's a certain point at which, like you said, a, a filmmaker gets a certain degree of power and you would hope that they would exercise the commensurate degree of responsibility or obligation to the audience to not necessarily hold their hand, but at least be sure that they're covering the bases. I don't, I, and get I don't a think co-writer. the problem- I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I don't think the problem with Tenet is that it's, it's not heady enough or, or cool enough or crazy enough. I think I, I think there's a lot of cool stuff going on in that movie. I just it, it just bums me out that someone who is such a skilled technician so consistently drops the ball on just the basics, just the dramatic basics. Like, give us characters that we can invest in. You know, this movie, Big Trouble in Little China, is a perfect example of uh, of how to do bombast well. Even though at the beginning of the movie, there's a framing device that says. This whole story works out well, and, you know, the main character or the Jack Burton character, uh, if you accept him as the main character, he's going to come out of it unscathed. So there's never a time when I'm watching Big Trouble in Little China where I think all of my good friends are are going to get killed, but I care enough about them because they're, they're funny and they're unique and they have a good rapport and an interesting dynamic, and so I'm on their side regardless of how I know whether or not the story ends. There are plenty of movies I love that I've watched 20 times. I don't think all of a sudden on my 20th rewatch of uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory that Charlie's going to slip and fall into one of the traps, but I still, I'm still happy for him when he finds the golden ticket. Like, I'm still... I'm invested in him on an emotional level, and I just I think that's where Tenet fails. 
All right, well, on that note, we will go ahead and wrap up. Again, if you want to contribute to this ongoing debate about Christopher Nolan and Tenet or whatever else, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, if you want to talk about uh, They Live, since we're going to be doing Carpenter, if you want to just give us thoughts on Carpenter's uh, filmography, go ahead and email us, movies at wisecrack.co, or you can call 1-213-534-8807. All right, before we sign off, where can people find you on the internet, Amanda? Watch Wisecrack videos. I write a lot of them and edit all of them. Um, and I tweet quarterly at Twitter at Amanda Shirker. All right, Raymond. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. Um, feel free to uh, stop by and say hello. And uh, I think we're uh, we're doing Carpenter all month. Uh, next week, do you want to do? Uh, we talked about doing the Fog. That sounds great. Yeah. So uh, rest in peace, Hal Holbrook, one of the stars of The Fog. Uh, excited to talk about that one uh, next week on the show. Looking forward to it. Uh, all right. You can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, Insta, A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. We wrapped on True West, but if you want, you can still catch the live stream video that's been archived. It's $15 uh, Australian, 12 bucks probably U.S., like nine pounds. And just so I can give myself a little plug... Uh, about how it was received. Broadway World wrote that uh, Ryan Bowne and Austin Hayden deliver naturalistic performances that are astounding in their commitment to the level of physicality as the tensions rise. A powerful piece of theater that is presented with alarming honesty. And then the Sydney Morning Herald, John Shand, who's a really tough-ass, yeah, uh, John Shand's a really tough-ass critic, but he wrote, Ryan Bowne and Austin Hayden give powerful performances in True West, Hayden's ferocious performance won't be quickly forgotten. So go and freaking check this shit out. Great review. Yeah, we yeah, the, the we had we had some it was very it was very humbling and it was amazing and it was an amazing experience and I miss it already and hopefully we can do a longer season, but as of now, uh, it is done, but you can check out the video still. You can go to truewestsydney.com and you can purchase the digital version. It's like I said it's cheap as chips, but it's only going to be available and up until Tuesday the 16th of February. So there's a little time crunch, and then we gotta well, get it. Down. You left out uh, the best part of both of those reviews, where they talked about what a hunk you are, too. Well, in the show, in the show, I absolutely am not. I had my big old gross beard, and my hair's all nasty, and I'm <laughs> covered in dirt, and oh, no. I'm smelly. You can't and... stop a star from shining, sir. Yeah, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know you try to play it on. Yeah, shut up. Sign us off. Get us out of here, Raymond. All right, everybody, this is Jack Burton of the Pork Chop Express telling you to take it easy until next week.